Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Susan Shirk. Imagine you're a young scholar researching an issue or a place that is, for some reason, inaccessible. You watch and record what you can from the outside, looking for glimpses of truth from behind a tall curtain. Then one day, quite suddenly, you are invited to go behind the curtain and find yourself sitting face to face with one of the key leaders of that thing you are trying to study. In the spring of 1971, that happened to Professor Susan Shirk, who accompanied a small group of U.S. scholars visiting China. At that time, enmeshed in the throes of the Cultural Revolution, China had become nearly impossible to visit. Shirk's group ended their month-long tour behind the bamboo curtain with a surprise courtesy call with the urbane premier, Zhou Enlai. That visit was several months before President Nixon's historic trip to China in 1972, when he toasted Zhou Enlai at a state banquet. Mr. Prime Minister, I wish to thank you for your very gracious and eloquent remarks. At this very moment, through the wonder of telecommunications, more people are seeing and hearing what we say than on any other such occasion in the whole history of the world. Shirk returned to the United States and began an academic career at the University of California, San Diego. On the road to building one of the premier academic centers for studying contemporary China, Professor Shirk was called to serve the U.S. government. From 1997 through 2000, at the end of the Clinton administration, she was able to draw on her academic expertise as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State covering China. During our conversation, Professor Shirk talks about the challenges facing the premier at the time, Zhu Rongji, known as the architect of Chinese economic reforms. But let's start with her visit to China five decades ago, when she was only one of a handful of Americans permitted to visit Beijing. Susan Shirk, so nice to see you again. Thanks for taking time. Um, you have an incredible history of working in and on China. I wanted to start by your trip to China in 1972. Uh, with 71. 71, I'm sorry, 71, <laughs> with the uh, Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars. Could you just talk a little bit about what the group was and your trip and your meeting with Joe and Lai towards the end? Well, um, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars was the anti-war wing of the Association of Asian Studies. and. We were PhD students doing research in Hong Kong because that's how you study China. Nobody could go to China to do research. Uh, and we were at University Service Center, which still exists, I'm happy to say, based at China, Chinese University of Hong Kong. And um, so we kind of constituted ourselves as the Hong Kong branch of the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars because we were very opposed to American policy in Vietnam. And uh, then the so-called patriotic Chinese 
in Hong Kong, which is basically the underground Communist Party in Hong Kong, uh, cultivated us. You know, they came over and chatted us up and uh, tried to make friends with us, and that was interesting Mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, I guess, in the spring of 71, we decided to apply to go to China. I think we were a little bit encouraged by these folks, these... uh, journalists and people like that in Hong Kong to do that. But our idea was it'll be good to have on record our interest in going to China because 10 years from now, when things maybe open up, they'll see that we were really keen to go. So we applied to go. So in any case, they knew about us. And then uh, after ping pong team, they came to us and said, how would you like to go to China? And of course, this was a dream come true because all of us had decided to study China at a time when we might never have gone to China, you know. So that's still to me a puzzle. Why did I pick a place I might never have gone to see uh, for myself? Um, so anyway, uh, we went to China for a month, all expenses paid by the Chinese government traveled all over China, Da Jai, the uh, uh, agricultural model, Nung Ye Shui Da Jai, and uh, Chen Yunghui, the leader, hosted us for three days there. We went to Yan'an, we went all over for a whole month. And then um, when we were in Beijing, we uh, suddenly learned that Henry Kissinger had come at the same time to arrange the Nixon visit. While you were traveling around the rest of China. Well, I think we were in Beijing when he came. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, Joe and Lai invited us to come in for a conversation and bring our tape recorders because I think he wanted to communicate with the outside world and maybe also with the Chinese people themselves to explain this 180 degree turn in reaching out to the United States. So we had a four hour meeting with Joe and Lai, um, and he had Yao Wenyuan and Zhang Chunqiao sitting on either side of him, two of the gang of four, who appeared to be there mostly to make sure he didn't say anything wrong. Uh, And he was, very impressively smooth, suave, clearly understood English, even though the um, they used interpretation. We asked Joe and Lai what had happened to bring about this change in Chinese approach to the United States. And his answer was pretty anodyne. It was, well, the Chinese people and the American people want to be friends. So if the people want to be friends, the governments have to talk to each other. And if the governments are going to talk to each other, we have to invite the president. And then he said, now I wish Susan Shirk were president of the United States, but she's not. So we have to invite Richard Nixon. Wow. Very charming. That was amazing. So um, uh, that was kind of the high point of my life at that point. And, uh, So uh, what was interesting is that the transcript from the interview actually became an internal study document in China. 
for others within the system to read. Right. And so uh, for years afterward, people knew who I was because of that. I had tremendous luck. And of course, I feel also very fortunate to have seen China when it was still in the Cultural Revolution era. Uh, And uh, nowadays, when I go to North Korea from Beijing, the contrast is very similar to going from Hong Kong to the PRC in 1971. I want to ask you about the Cultural Revolution. This is the time Mm -hmm. you guys go in 1971. It's kind of big, heavy, heavy uh, political turmoil happening. Mm How much of that came out in the meeting or came out in what you saw when you traveled around that this was a uh, country in modest internal strife? Well, we didn't see any Red Guard um, confrontations or anything like that. The Red Guards had been pretty much disbanded. But it's clear that the Mao cult and the emphasis on ideological remolding and everything was still very intense. So we, for example, visited uh, Wuchi Ganshao, a May 7th cadre school, which they made to sound, of course now when you look at Xinjiang and this ideological remolding of the Uyghurs, I think about that because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they, tried to make it sound like, oh, this was summer camp and, you know, these uh, middle-aged officials were there or intellectuals were there doing manual labor in the fields and this was such a great experience for them. Right, you know. With their their agrarian Um, roots. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Dajai model of self-reliance, which in Shaanxi province, this place where Uh, They were supposed to be relying entirely on themselves. And then later on, of course, after a few years later, we learned from research that, in fact, the whole thing was completely subsidized by Beijing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, talk about a Potemkin village. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. a complete um, uh, fake. Mm -hmm. And... um, and then Little Red Books. The place was very, uh, even in the wind, in the summer, because we were there in the summer, you know, everybody was kind of monochrome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they were wearing. And what they were wearing. The, uh, there were some summer skirts that mm-hmm. had flowers, and the, and the kids were always more colorful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we saw some of the model ballets and operas mm, mm-hmm. that Zhang Qing, that was the only cultural activity really allowed or there. Cultural Revolution era operas. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and he- then we went to universities where the only thing going on in universities was manual labor in factories and, um, uh, and military training there was really no classes. Mm-hmm. No teaching, no right. instruction. Uh, and then I remember we went to these housewives' uh, neighborhood factories, factories in quotes, and basically it was a recycling of metal and stuff. These women were sitting there with pulling metal 
shreds out of old rags. I and mean, be recycled. to be recycled. I mean, it's really pretty pathetic. And that was the start of these township village mm -hmm. enterprises. I mean, the my perspective was somewhat different from that of others in our group. Many of the others in the group studied Chinese history or official policy from reading People's Daily and Red Flag and that kind of thing. I was interviewing refugees mm -hmm. about uh, Chinese high school students and what life was like and um, how the political criteria for university admission affected the social relations of the school um, in a system that I later called virtuocracy. Mm -hmm. And the th uh, one of the things that really frustrated these refugees, and I absorbed this from them, was that at that time, getting into university was a matter not just of your own political behavior, but of your family class background. And in a kind of reverse affirmative action, uh, they, if your family came from a capitalist or landlord family, but also from just middle peasant or intellectual or a family with some relations with people who'd gone to Taiwan, mm -hmm. you, it was very difficult to go to university. And worker, peasant, soldier, but officials too. Mm -hmm. if, you were, if your father or grandfather had been a communist official, then you would have an advantage. Mm -hmm. So um, I ended up raising that contradiction in Mao's thinking between uh, giving people who are political activists and really enthusiastic supporters of revolutionary values the chance to go to university, but then also this ascriptive characteristic of your family background. I thought that was totally wrong and I ended up arguing with a lot of people. But also I just had learned a lot about uh, life in China at the grassroots, even before the Cultural Revolution and then during the Cultural Revolution. So I was no longer um, uh, kind of starry-eyed, excited about Mao's visionary ideas in the Cultural Revolution, but whereas many of the other people in my group still had um, believed you know, because remember, 1968 was the time you had student rebellions all over the world. Mm -hmm. So people in Europe, people in the United States were had were somewhat inspired mm -hmm. by Mao's by ideas Mao about collectivism, mm -hmm. uh, going after inequality, mm -hmm. people serve the people, this kind of thing. But I was already pretty... Um, disillusioned. Having heard what students had to right, say, I talked to right, refugees and right. just seeing the inequalities and the unfairness right. of it. So we had a number of interesting debates within our group too about mm, that. Fascinating. Well, uh, and then how were you perceived or received by local Chinese people? I mean, you went to a lot of different places. Did people stay away from you because you were foreign? Did they No, no, no. They were very, no, no. They were very, um, you know, I mean, 
we were a curiosity, but there was no unfriendliness at all. Maybe we could move to your time of coming into government. I was reading what you had said, what you said publicly earlier about coming into government, in which you thought you were going to get the keys to the kingdom and understand the way that uh, leadership politics worked once you had access to the top Intel. secret documents Intel. that, that uh, senior officials in the U.S. have, and you were sorely disappointed by what, what that was. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the process of coming from academia into the government sure. and uh, what, what that felt like and some of the differences? Well, first of all, obviously, it's a rare privilege to have a chance to serve in government as an academic. So, And I really admired Dick Solomon, Mike Oxenberg. You know, I knew them quite well. And I wanted to emulate what they had done in helping make history and improve U.S.-China relations. Um, and so I was thrilled with the chance to do it, but I was worried about a few things. I mean, one thing I was really worried about is as an academic, you never have a boss. <laughs> Just no like in boss. government. <laughs> but oh, in government, everybody has a boss. And that's the amazing thing to me. I mean, even in the State Department, assistant secretaries, undersecretaries, they're still staffed to the secretary. Right. And they still kind of think that way. Yep. Yep. And that was, so I, I was fortunate. I had my assistant secretary, I was a deputy assistant secretary in the East Asia Bureau, working for Stanley Roth, who was assistant secretary. But because I was a political appointee, DAS, I kind of had a, a, a little bit more status and um, and Stanley was very nice at sharing uh, responsibility for China with me. He basically put me forward as the China person in the bureau. So that was great. Um, I was harassed by, by my secretary who was one of these longtime foreign service secretaries who told me, Oh, there's no way an academic could ever learn how to do this job. That's what she told me. <laughs> so it was very demanding trying to learn the game and that kind of thing. But it was a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, I think Madeleine Albright had been an academic, too. I mean, of course, she'd been involved in politics for a very long time. But she was very supportive, and uh, I felt in some ways we were on the same wavelength. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, once we were in her office and um, I was trying to explain why we should push hard on one issue and give up on another issue because I said, you know, there's, as I'm a comparative politics person, I study Chinese domestic politics. So there's no way that uh, Chinese leadership will be able to do this. Whereas this other thing, I think they really can. And uh, so I was making the domestic politics case and one of Secretary Albright's top advisors said, but Susan, you know, there are no domestic politics in China. It's a communist country. And she just looked over at him and with this withering look and said, 
don't be ridiculous. Because she had studied Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, so she knew very well there plenty of domestic politics in communist countries. Could I ask you on that kind of broader point? I mean, we're at a time now where China dominates the headlines and people at all levels of government and society and business, they all have to know something about China. But at that time, in the late 1990s, what did you think of the general level of China in the U.S. government? I, I was super impressed with the Foreign Service expertise. You know, they brought me in as an academic because after the Taiwan Strait crisis in 96, uh, 95, 96, and there was like a major big push to try to put a floor under U.S.-China relations and prevent them from going downward even more. And uh, they felt that there was a, needed some more expertise about China. So I was the beneficiary of that perception. But I have to say, the Foreign Service people, I thought, were extremely knowledgeable. I really didn't think they needed me, actually. Um, I'm glad they thought they needed me. But, uh, you know, people like Jeff Bader understood Chinese domestic politics very well. And he had been my predecessor in that role. And then he went over to the NSC, so we worked in partnership. So, you know, I thought I thought it was pretty good. Now, of course, senior level people don't necessarily have specific China expertise, but you know, I thought at the middle level, mm -hmm. it was really quite good. So, if you don't mind, could we move to Jiang Zemin's visit to the US sure. in 97? My recollection was uh, that at some point you rode on the Jiangsimin's plane. I was, yeah, I went out and rode on the Chinese plane. So I went to uh, Pearl Harbor with him, was there in Hawaii when he was playing the zither, um, Home on the Range or whatever he was playing, I can't remember, at the dinner. And so I actually had a chance to uh, see him pretty close up and Sung Ching Hong too. Um, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think Chang Zemin did go out swimming mm -hmm. in Hawaii in and Sung Ching Hong was on the shore, we were chatting and uh, that was very interesting. So uh, it was, yeah, it, you know, and I felt as I observed Jiang Zemin on that trip, and then later when President Clinton, we took President Clinton back to China, and to other meetings, when Secretary Albright would go, we'd go see Jiang Zemin again. I felt that, you know, he was really China's first modern 20th century, maybe not 20th century, late 20th century, uh, leader to play the role of global statesman. I mean, Joe and Lai did what he could, but it was pretty limited, right, to the non-aligned mm -hmm. world and the communist bloc. And uh, Joe and Lai was not welcome in Europe or mm -hmm. wherever. So um, Jiang Zemin, and that, of course, Deng Xiaoping, after Tiananmen in 89, 
he made this call to give the top leader in China three jobs. The general secretary of the party, which is really the most powerful job, the head of the military commission, second most powerful, and then the presidency, which actually has no real power at all, except you are the uh, head of state. So therefore, you go around representing China internationally. And I felt that Jiang Zemin really loved doing that. He relished it. And that created a great opportunity because we could lavish that kind of respect on him personally and on China as a rising power uh, through ceremonies, through dinners, that kind of thing. And uh, that was incredibly useful because we were trying to get China at that time to join all of these international regimes. And that required China changing its behavior and making what for them are big concessions. There wasn't much we could do. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were already in conformity with mm -hmm. those global regimes. I mean, what were we going to give China? Of course, what they always want is something on Taiwan, which we're not going to do. So what else are we going to give them? Mm -hmm. What we gave them was status, respect. Mm -hmm. And these regimes are largely non-proliferation ones, or the ones that I'm thinking of, are, and, and trade as well. Right. Yeah, uh, Access to the kind of those global organizations and clubs which had rules that China right. would then have to adhere to. Right. Uh, and so the pomp and circumstance of the state visit was something that, this was the first visit of a Chinese leader since the Tiananmen crackdown, so the Chinese took it extremely seriously. Right, and, and I think he took it extremely seriously as an individual, mm -hmm. and that was just a wonderful asset. Mm -hmm. And actually, I have to say, even today, mm -hmm. I think that uh, desire on the part of China and its leaders to have status respect in the world mm -hmm. is a really positive motivation that gives us something to work with. Even today, you think? Yeah, compared mm -hmm. to Putin. Mm -hmm. I mean, Putin in Russia, you mm -hmm. know, is a spoiler. Mm -hmm. So, but that's not true for China. I, I want to ask you uh, about the return trip of President Clinton to China, but first, um, I think Chen Chi-chen uh, was the vice premier then, if I recall, or the one handling foreign policy, either as a state council or vice premier. And my recollection was he was kind of the top of the top of that profession in the Chinese system. And I just wanted to ask you if you have any impressions of working with him. Yes, very, I mean, very modest and modestly spoken, not a big, didn't act like a big ego, and certainly around the leader. Um, he's a staffer too, <laughs> um, but uh, impressive in the same way Joe and Lai was impressive. He seemed very much in the Joe and Lai tradition. Um, well, let's go to President Clinton's trip back in which he takes this kind of almost epic journey to many different cities in China. I think it was mm -hmm. about 10 days mm -hmm. uh, in uh, 1998. What I remembered most, uh, and I share this with Jeff, my memory of it was the um, focus at the White House on what the optics were for the arrival ceremony for President Clinton in Tiananmen Square. Yeah. And that would have been, the it was the first visit of a U.S. president since the Tiananmen Square crackdown. 
and in an age before YouTube, that image of a Chinese protester standing in front of a tank in Tiananmen was what most people in the United States knew of Tiananmen Square was that, that image and that the, the crackdown, the PLA crackdown in Tiananmen. And so there was a lot of talk about literally what are the camera angles and what's the imagery of the arrival ceremony and the Chinese insist on it and yes, they insisted on it because that's what they do for, for heads of state that come and that, that's, their, that's their protocol. But um, could you just talk a little bit about why such a lengthy trip and then uh, on the policy side, uh, U.S. is not as interested in the pomp and circumstance as Chinese officials might be, but what are the sorts of things that you recall the U.S. was looking for in uh, kind of having China sign up to or work towards during, during that trip? Well, it was a good period in China in 98. There were uh, some really positive things going on domestically, including the strengthening of the legal system. There was a man named Xiaoyang, who was the head of the Supreme Judicial Court, who was introducing all sorts of, um, of reforms to the legal system to strengthen the autonomy of the legal system. There was some loosening up of controls over intellectual life, over religion. It was a little blooming and contending period. You know, not quite 100 flowers, but, you know, maybe 60 flowers. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, we were feeling pretty good. And this relates, of course, to the, uh, how our objectives in terms of uh, improving, liberalizing China, um, which would be better for people in China and uh, bring the two countries a little bit closer together in values. And, in, and that goes along with market, you know, market reform. But on the political side, you know, nobody expected China to democratize uh, anytime soon. But the idea was definitely we felt always that when things were moving in a more uh, looser political control over society in China, it was always easier to do other things together. And that was important for the United States. So it was that kind of period. And what I remember the most is how the entire uh, uh, party, meaning mainly President Clinton, uh, the First Lady, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, and Sandy Berger, the National Security Advisor, were really, f had such a positive feeling about that visit for two reasons. One, that um, the Chinese side allowed the press conference to be televised live. Why don't you mention why that's such a big deal? Well, because it had never been done before and because this press conference, you compare that press conference, watch it today and compare it to the press conferences we have with Chinese leaders today, which are so highly structured, only maybe two or three questions from each side and there's just no spontaneity at all. But that press conference was very freewheeling. 
There was a lot of back and forth. Um, and one of the things that President Clinton said was in response to a question about Tibet, he raised Tibet and said to Jiang Zemin, you know, you really would like the Dalai Lama. You know, mm -hmm. you really should talk to him. I think the two of you could really make some progress in mutual understanding. And, you know, Jiang Zemin, you know, of course that put him on the spot. He didn't say anything terribly new, but he handled himself mm -hmm. uh, with great aplomb, yeah. really. And, um, and then the other thing that happened was the Chinese side allowed President Clinton's speech at Beida to be televised live to the Chinese public. And what was great about that is it signified a kind of confidence on the part of the Chinese leadership that, you know, they could uh, allow the Chinese people to hear the words of the American president and not worry that somehow they were gonna rise up and overthrow mm. the Communist Party. And you don't have that today. Mm. And in fact, the contrast with President Obama's trip in 2009 is very striking because I think uh, from what I've heard from my colleagues in, who were in the government then, the Chinese uh, leadership and the people around um, Hu Jintao were scared to allow the Chinese public to hear what President Obama had to say because they thought he's such a charismatic speaker that they might rise up. Um, and they had seen what happened when he went to Egypt mm -hmm. and how people got so excited in Egypt. And then there was a kind of color revolution later. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want that to happen. So uh, I'd say ever since that Obama visit, things have been much tighter. But mm. the Clinton visit was quite relaxed mm -hmm. in that respect. And it was, it, it really opened the way for greater uh, cooperation between the two countries and across the board. Yeah, my recollection was um, on the mill mill side, on the yeah. non-proliferation side of the Maritime. WTO um, accession, uh, all of those all like, everything. big baskets of things. So it created tremendous positive momentum. Um, let's bring that momentum down for the next <clears throat> question I'm going to uh -huh. ask you about is for when um, uh, NATO planes mistakenly bombed the Belgrade embassy, uh, which was May of 99. <clears throat> uh, and uh, you were uh, at... State Department at the time, right. um, and I, I've heard Secretary Albright talk about this visit she took to the Chinese oh, embassy. Yeah. It was gr it was really. I, I don't know if you were there as well. Well, actually, I wasn't there because my daughter was a ballet dancer, and she was dancing. She was at the Pittsburgh Ballet, so I drove off that evening. Ken Lieberthal was there, but I was not there. But I've heard about it. I was very involved in uh, the American response after we heard about it and when I heard about it and turned around and went right back to the to work mm -hmm. and uh, the approach we took which is something I thought about as I drove back to the State Department was this obviously was a horrific 
mistake, accidental mistake. We'd really screwed up royally. And the way I thought about it is we have to apologize profusely in every way we can. Because if we don't want to be reminded of this and be asked for apologies forever after, just as uh, we have between China and Japan, the whole question of apology has become so critical and the Chinese side, I think, uses it against the Japanese to uh, to put themselves, give themselves the moral high ground. And then you went with Undersecretary Pickering to well, Beijing yeah. to explain what happened yes. uh, the following month. So one of my uh, jobs was I was in charge of putting together the uh, investigative report of what had happened, which included the CIA and the NATO forces, which means the US military. Um, and, you know, that was really, you know, shocking embarrassing that we had made such a amateur mistake, especially the targeting. And just for the record, what was the mistake that happened? Well, the mistake was the uh, NATO forces in the United States had been trying to degrade the Serbian military in, um, uh, and they had uh, tried to find as many military-related targets as they could, and they were frankly sort of running out of targets. So a contractor for the CIA uh, who worked on nonproliferation uh, had uh, picked out a an arms depot that he believed uh, was engaged in proliferating activity from Yugoslavia to, I'm not sure where actually, but a proliferator. So uh, he had some information about that depot. He tried to place it um, on the maps or the overhead um, projection of it. And he uh, he did that through a very primitive method of taking the address of one place and then going to several parallel streets and saying, oh, this big building must have that same address on that street. Uh, and so that's how he mistakenly uh, thought that the building, which is the Chinese embassy, was that arms depot. So, uh, and then what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to run the targeting information through a bunch of other databases to make sure you don't have collateral damage striking a school or a hospital or something. But I think, okay, so the first mistake was this contractor uh, uh, placing the arms depot in the Chinese embassy. Mm -hmm. On the this, target list. On the target list. The mm -hmm. second pro uh, mistake was when they ran it through 
two or three additional databases that the military has um, that it didn't pop up that this was actually the Chinese embassy. And I think that's probably because people get lazy and those databases are supposed to be independent, but they're not. People just repeat or replicate the wrong information in the next databases. So the running it through the databases didn't pick up that this was a, a mistake. The Chinese embassy. Right. So that's basically what it was. And, uh, but of course, one of my uh, frustrations is that the report, which is very straightforward, we got the goods, the information explains it, I wanted to add an appendix of other mistakes the U.S. has made, which I thought would make this mistake more credible, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't let me do that. They thought, oh, no, that's too embarrassing. And then the other thing is, yes, we did translate it into Chinese. It was on the U.S. Embassy Beijing website for many years. I don't think it's there anymore. I think it needs to be there, and I think it needs to live there forever, because now in China, if you go on Baidu and you try to find, you know, some young person wants to know what happened, there's no way to know the facts. Instead, you get all these conspiracy theories mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, why the U.S. purposefully bombed the Chinese embassy. Um, maybe I should switch ending your time as DAS to a, mm -hmm. a happier visit, um, mm -hmm. which uh, is basically, uh, I arrived at the embassy around, right after that, uh, and there was kind of no interaction with Chinese officials. And then they restarted when Larry Summers came out as Treasury Secretary to meet with Zhu Rongji to restart WTO negotiations. Mm -hmm. And I remember you came on that trip. The meeting yeah. was in Lanzhou. You were so nice to me. I, I was sent by the embassy to set up this meeting. Uh, because the Ministry of Finance said, okay, uh, Larry Summers is coming. Zhu Rongji really respects Larry Summers, so why don't you come out to Lanzhou for this meeting? So they sent me out to kind of set up the, the mechanics of the meeting. And uh, I remember you came on the on the plane, so the Ministry right. of Finance chartered a plane to go from Beijing to Lanzhou so yeah. you guys could go on it. And um, the, the Chinese, as they always do in these meetings, they restrict who can attend and who can't. And they gave us a ridiculously small number. I don't remember the number. 10 positions or something mm -hmm. like that. And I, I said, well, you know, that's going to be really hard to do. And <clears throat> I, I still remember to this day, I'm embarrassed. We, we, it was about an hour-long ride from the airport to the meeting mm -hmm. place in Lanzhou. And uh, the minders from the, the Ministry of Finance said, oh, I'm going to ride in your coaster, in your van, you know, just so I can tell your uh, American colleagues, you know, what's happening mm -hmm. in Lanzhou, what they should know about the scenery. And I said, oh, no, no one's interested in that. Thank you very much. We really don't want you. So you, all you guys get off the plane. I'm riding in, we're all riding in, and I'm explaining what the day is going to look like. Larry Summers wanted to visit a market and do some other things. Ken Lieberthal stands up in the first 10 minutes and says, James, what can you tell us about the surrounding hills and things like that? And I said, Ken, I'm sorry, I really just haven't had time to get a briefing on um, the topography of Lancho uh, and Gansu. I'm here to kind of tell you what, what, the, what the meetings actually are, but I, I still remember that the... the the Ministry of Finance person was there. He was pretending that he was going to do that just for that purpose to tell about oh. that. But but really, um, it was so that he could kind of listen to what our side had to right. say before the meeting. Uh, but you're very kind. Before the meeting, you said, James, you know, I know I'm not on the list. 
And um, I didn't fly all this way to be uh, uh, sitting outside the meeting room, so I'm just going to go in there and get a seat. And I said, you, you go for it, Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, Shirk. And sure enough, you, you got the meeting as far as I know. And so uh, that meeting went well. I think that, I don't want to say changed the Chinese perception of the Belgrade bombing, but that, uh, in my mind, signaled that they were willing to resume uh, official relations with the United States. And the WTO and, negotiators were part of that. Yeah, because... You, you forgot to mention that the reason we had to go chase them and try to uh, get those negotiations back on track was that we had President Clinton's uh, domestic political advisors, including Rubin, had uh, persuaded him not to finalize and sign the WTO bilateral deal when Premier Jurangji came to the United States, which was another, I mean, talk about a major mistake. And uh, we were talking about domestic politics in China. You know, um, when I heard that, and I was on the Jurangji trip, and I was on the plane, so I was coming in with Zhu Rangji, and then I heard that after all this accomplishment, the um, we weren't gonna conclude the agreement. It was essentially done. And we weren't going to conclude it because the domestic advisors convinced President Clinton that we should just wait until, oh, a week or two after he leaves because if we conclude it when he's there, it's going to look to Congress and to the media as if we had compromised too much to get it done in time. Just the optics of that. And of course, nobody had looked at what the deal was. It was a fabulous deal that Charlene Borshevsky had negotiated. And it was just outrageous. And it was really as if uh, nobody had given any thought to, or these, uh, domestic advisors, Gene Sperling and um, Rubin, Bob Rubin, said, you know, because we have to go to Congress for permanent normal trade relations, and we, that's going to be hard. So we want it to look like a really good deal, and it won't look like a really good deal if we sign it now. So uh, meanwhile, of course, I and Ken Lieberthal and our bosses, Sandy Berger and Madeleine Albright, we're all saying, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's a big mistake. The whole deal, we could lose the deal. And then, but that's what happened. And, and then it was very embarrassing because I was traveling around on the whole trip with Zhurangji. Uh, but who knew that we were going to accidentally bomb the Chinese embassy in Belgrade just like six weeks later after this fiasco of not signing the WTO deal. Chinese cut off all diplomatic interaction with us, except, interestingly, some discussions about North Korea. And, um, and so President Clinton basically had to try to chase Jiang Zemin to restart WTO negotiations. And he felt, he knew he made a big mistake. Um, well, uh I wanted to, you had mentioned North Korea, and I wanted to move past your government time mm -hmm. to your academic work coming coming back 
here to San Diego and interacting with uh, Chinese officials uh, and their kind of vision for Northeast Asia. Could you talk a little about what that experience has been like and, and what's worked and kind of what hasn't and, and at that time and kind of where we are now? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, before I went into government in 1993, as the director of the U University of California System-Wide Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, uh, as the Cold War ends, you know, I'm looking at Asia and I'm thinking that we need, the United States really should sustain its presence in Asia, not just through bilateral alliances, but by building some regional multilateral architecture. You compare Asia to Europe, you know, we see, for example, Germany and France, where we, were able to reconcile after World War II because they're part of a kind of regional multilateral structure. Maybe that could really help China and Japan. You know, that I, I really thought that um, some regional multilateral institutions would be of value to the United States and to the whole region. So we started the Northeast Asia Cooperation Dialogue, the very first meeting. The North, I went around to all the capitals to try to talk uh, to the foreign ministries to get uh, them to participate. Winston Lord was the assistant secretary at the time. He was very supportive. And um, I went to Pyongyang. And the North Koreans came. Actually, I like to point out that at that 93 meeting, the North Koreans were more enthusiastic about participating than the Chinese were. But what we saw was over time, and I saw this through my work in these NISAD meetings, that uh, some folks in the Chinese foreign ministry saw that participating in regional multilateral institutions might be a good way for China to reassure its neighbors that as it grew in economic and military power, it wasn't a threat and that its intentions were friendly. And so um, in the beginning, I worked with the only other female in the group was um, because we had foreign ministry, defense ministry, and academics. It's what's called a track two dialogue, um, was Fu Wing. And she um, is now, she had a very successful career in the foreign ministry, ambassador to the UK, among other countries, and um, was vice foreign minister. But um, she's retired now. But um, at the time, she was kind of a junior diplomat in the Asia department. And she came to the NISAD meetings, and she and I, every night, would sort of figure out how what to do the next day. Because she was coming to see that participating in these kind of activities was a good way for China to um, to be reassuring and to show it's a responsible power. 
and uh, did she have ideas? Was she? Yeah, she was really. She was. She was kind of trying to encourage others on the Chinese side to participate mm -hmm. more actively. And of course, it was also the time when the ASEAN Regional Forum was starting, so she would go to that too. And then I remember we rotated the hosting duties among the different countries, and when it was in China, she uh, wanted me to meet Wang Yi, who I think at the time was Director General of the Asia Department. And so I had a good conversation with him about the importance of multilateral cooperation in the region. And from that time on, I would meet with Wang Yi and Fuing to talk about their Asia policy. So I talk about this in my book, Fragile Superpower, because I really admired the way they crafted China's kind of good neighbor policy toward Asia in the 90s and early 2000s. And that all went pretty well until about 2008, 2009. Uh, and so on the big kind of meta question of how to deal with a rising China or what kind of negotiation strategies work, what, you've been in and out of China now for a few years, a couple mm -hmm. decades. Um, you had mentioned earlier this notion of uh, face and being perceived as a good public actor in some, uh, in some cases, kind of having an influence on Chinese mm -hmm. decision making um, to this day. Are there other areas or other kind of helpful hints that we can think about uh, as we deal with the China that's um, kind of powerful and global? Well, the China of today, especially under Xi Jinping, is... Uh, you know, I, I'm just not sure what Xi's intentions are. And there's a lot of overreaching, which is now provoking a whole global backlash against China. So this earlier formula of China under Jiang Zemin and at least half of Hu Jintao, which is China works at reassuring the world that as it grows more powerful, its intentions are still benign. It's a responsible power. And the U.S. pursues an engagement policy to um, give China the expectation that it could gain respect and status and regional and global leadership through that approach. That's broken down. And uh, now the Chinese side is overreaching. And I am afraid that the US side is overreacting in ways that in the end may be very harmful to ourselves. So um, I believe that it's important to push back more than maybe we did it at an earlier time, but then you got to follow that pushback with a smart negotiation. You have to give the Chinese side the sense that if they fix some things, change their behavior, that we might be able to resume a constructive relationship. Right now, Chinese side has concluded that the United States is engaged in containment. 
just trying to slow down China's rise, block China's rise. And if they believe that, there's no motivation for them to fix uh, or change their behavior at all. So I believe that we've got to push back, but we have to follow it by some smart negotiations and also by continuing to cooperate in uh, areas of common concern, especially global issues like climate change. So, uh, and I'm really worried that right now we're in a, a real uh, cycle, very negative self-reinforcing cycle of overreach and overreaction. Well, on that note, Susan Jerk, thanks so much for taking time. Really appreciate hearing all the great history and your thoughts where we are today. Thank you. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Susan Shirk, speaking with me from San Diego, California. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green. <laughs>